Coming up on the Six Ps podcast, we're delving into Salem, Massachusetts for Act 1 of the Crucible. We're going to summarise the key events, have a look at some key quotations and try and make some links to Year of Wonders. That's coming up on the Six Ps podcast right now. Great to have your company today on the Six Ps podcast episode L today, and we're shifting our attention from the Year of Wonders to the Crucible. The next four podcasts are going to be about each of the acts on the Crucible, one, two, three, four, and we're just going to take a pause on our music themes for those as well, because we've got a lot to get through. If you would like to get in touch Email is the best way to do so. It's 6pspodcast at gmail.com. That's 6pspodcast at gmail.com. Happy to answer any of your questions that you might have about either of these comparative texts. But enough of the formalities. Let's get into Act 1 of The Crucible. And I'll start with a bit of an overview. And it starts with a description of Salem, the village in America. And we're introduced to Reverend Paris, who is obviously the Reverend of Salem. His daughter, uh, Betty Paris, uh, won't wake. And we find out that it has something to do with the fact that Abigail, his niece, he caught dancing in the forest. We're also introduced to the Putnams, Thomas and Anne. And Putnam has lost all but one of her babies from childbirth. And Thomas is a greedy landowner. Following this, Abigail has a discussion with Betty and the other girls, namely Mercy and Mary Warren, and Abigail threatens them not to say anything about what they did in the forest. Abigail then has a private word with John Proctor, who is a farmer, and it is revealed that they had an affair previously and that it was Elizabeth Proctor, John Proctor's wife, that threw Abigail out. Following this, we're introduced to a couple of other characters, Rebecca Nurse, Giles Corey, uh, and Giles Corey's wife, Martha, who are well-respected in the village of Salem. There is talk that witchcraft is afoot and that this is causing many issues throughout the neighbourhood, including the fact that a number of girls cannot wake, namely Betty Paris and Ruth Putnam. Paris suggests or says that he is called for Reverend Hale, someone from outside the village, to come in and inquire about the potential for witchcraft, and Reverend Hale arrives. Reverend Hale takes a look into the village and says that he will look for witchcraft here, but they should not fear if they, or they need to agree to what he says at the end, whether it's witchcraft or not. It is Abigail who is questioned over the dancing in the forest. She places the blame on Tichuba, the slave, who then places the blame on women in the village. Abigail and the other girls then join in 
on the blaming of other women for witchcraft. And that is the end of Act 1. Act 1 is the longest act in the Crucible. It is almost 50 pages long. It's about 40 pages long, 40, 45 pages long. I'm going to go through um, it in some detail. I'll try not to go into too much detail because I know that we've already done this in class. But I guess we'll start on page 13. In fact, the first four pages really um, provide us with context information about the play. There are three types of text in The Crucible. We have dialogue from the characters, we have stage directions, and then we have Arthur Miller's commentary. And these namely appear in Act 1. And the first one goes for about four pages. In it, he describes Reverend Paris, who cut a villainous path, and that there is very little good to be said for him. This is on page 13. Later on, he's described as a widower with no interest for children. And in fact, it says, He, like the rest of Salem, never conceived that the children were anything but thankful for being permitted to walk straight, eyes slightly lowered, arms at their sides, and mouths shut until bidden to speak. This, of course, we'll find out just a little bit further on to the play, is in fact what everyone in the village does. They start listening. In fact, they believe that the voice of heaven speaks through the children. Salem is also described. Uh, it is described on page 13 as a barbaric frontier inhabited by a sect of fanatics. It suggests on page 14 that their creed forbade anything resembling a theatre or vain enjoyment. The idea that this is a very strict and sombre way of life is also stated here. So it's a really difficult place to live. There is, again, another reference to the fact that people like to speak about each other on page 14. This predilection for minding other people's business was time-honoured among the people of Salem. And it also suggests that there were people whose job it was to go around and check to see who wasn't at church on, a, on the Sabbath, on the Sunday, and people who were also working. We also get some information about the fact that um, the town is in a very precarious position. Um, the idea that the they could at any stage be attacked by Indians, in fact it says there, they stood, the forest that is, was full of mystery for them, and it stood dark and threatening over their shoulders night and day, for out of it Indian tribes marauded from time to time, and Reverend Paris had parishioners who had lost relatives to these heathen. This comes up later on in Act 1 with Abigail Williams, who, she, who her parents, in fact, she saw. The forest is described. Um, it says on page 15 that Salem folk believe that the virgin forest was the devil's last preserve which again is really important because Abigail and the girls decided to dance in the forest. The last section of this commentary really focuses on the tragedy that's about to occur. Well, it's called a tragedy on page 16, the Salem tragedy, which is about to begin in these pages developed from a paradox. And Miller makes reference to the current day, 1950s, when he wrote this text, when he says, it is a paradox in whose grip we still live and there is no prospect yet that we will discover its resolution. It closes by suggesting some of the reasons for the tragedy that occurs, including the idea that the perverse manifestation of panic, the fact that the balance began to turn towards greater individual freedom, and that long-held hatreds of neighbours could now be openly expressed and vengeance taken despite the Bible's charitable injunctions on page 17. So Miller provides us with, I guess, some context to the play, and especially the setting. 
And that takes us to the first piece of dialogue on page 17. So the dialogue begins with some stage directions, um, particularly describing Tichuba. I will note that on page 17, it says, She's also very frightened because her slave senses warned her that, as always, trouble in this house eventually lands on her back. And we find out later on in Act 1 that that is the case. Reverend Paris is praying. He questions both Tichuba and Abigail about what has been happening and Abigail is also introduced on page 18 she's described as a strikingly beautiful girl and orphan with an endless capacity for dissembling that means pretty much she always lies Paris um, has seen or witnessed the girls dancing in the forest and he questions Abigail about this He's extremely worried because of what it means for him. He wants to protect himself. If it's found out that his niece and his daughter were dancing, firstly, remember, no vain enjoyment allowed in, in um, Salem, and also the fact they were doing so in the forest, which is the devil's last preserve, um, means that he's really paranoid about this and about the existence of witchcraft. He's also worried because he believes people are after him. And three times on page 19, he talks about his enemies. He says, For surely my enemies will, and they will ruin me with it. Later on, my enemies will bring it out. And lastly, that there is a faction that is sworn to drive me from my pulpit. Abigail suggests that it is just sport, but Paris gets really, really angry about that and says that he saw someone naked. Abigail tries to refute this. And then Paris questions her about her previous position with the Proctor household. She was relinquished of her duties seven months earlier and hasn't been able to find a job since. When questioned about this, Abigail blames Goody Proctor, Elizabeth Proctor, John Proctor's wife, and calls her a bitter woman, a lying, cold, snivelling woman, and I will not work for such a woman. Later on, we are introduced to Anne Putnam, who is described as a twisted soul. She has lost a number of children, in fact, all by one children, uh, one child, I should say, through childbirth. She is married to Thomas Putnam, and there is some commentary that describes him. He is described as a deeply embittered man on page 23, and in fact, on page 22, Miller talks about the fact that he regarded himself as the intellectual superior of most of the people around him and the fact that his vindictive nature was demonstrated long before the witchcraft began. Thomas Putnam in this text is a really greedy character and we link him quite closely to the character of Joss Bont, someone who I guess um, shows himself to be greedy and gains off others in a crisis. Putnam immediately, in fact, one of the first things he sort of says is, there are hurtful, vengeful spirits laying hands on these children. He's pretty certain about this. Anne Putnam, his wife, talks about the fact, that, yes, I have laid seven babies unbaptized in this earth, and that she's looking for someone to blame. Obviously she does. This is a Puritan society. It's black and white thinking here. So there has to be a reason why this has happened. She also admits that she sent her daughter to Tichuba to speak to her because obviously she wanted to know um, why this was happening. She says, I take it on my soul, but who else may surely tell us what person murdered my babies? And we get this idea that Tichuba is someone who 
um, has this power or this knowledge that, that can help. Putnam again says that there is a murdering witch among us, bound to keep herself in the dark. He's adamant that it is witchcraft, and he threatens Paris by saying, let your enemies make of it what they will. You cannot blink it no more. We then cut later on to Abigail, who talks to the girls. Mary Warren is introduced as someone who is 17, a subservient, naive, lonely girl on page 25. Remember this introduction? Because later on in the text, there's a scene involving Abigail and Mary, and I think the introduction teaches us a lot about why they act the way they do. Mary's really worried. She says, the whole country's talking witchcraft. They'd be calling us witches, Abby, on page 25. And Mary Warren explains to us what witchcraft is. She says, witchery is a hanging error, a hanging like they'd done in Boston two years ago. We must tell the truth, Abby. You'll only be whipped for dancing and the other things. I like this expression, you know, you'll only be whipped for dancing. And in response, Abigail says, I will be whipped. She makes it about them as a plural, not her individually. She has the other girls involved as well. And Mary Warren, being subservient, of course, ends up following her path. Betty ends up waking up and is revealed by Betty that Abigail, on page 26, drank a charm to kill John Proctor's wife. And then I guess we get this idea or this information that Abigail and John Proctor were once an item. Abigail is extremely threatening then to the girls. She says that she will bring a pointy reckoning that will shudder you, as in the girls. So John Proctor is introduced with some commentary. In fact, something you might want to think about is how most of the male characters are introduced through commentary and the female characters are introduced through stage directions. You might want to look into that if you want to, Rebecca Nurse being one of the um, few who isn't. But um, here we get this description of John Proctor. Uh, A couple of things about him. First, he's in his middle 30s. He need not have been a partisan of any faction in the town, but there is evidence to suggest that he had a sharp and biting way with hypocrites. He is powerful of body and even-tempered, not easily led, um, and the fact that in Proctor's presence a fool felt his foolishness instantly, and a Proctor is almost marked by calumny, therefore. He's described as a sinner, but a sinner not only against the moral fashion of the time, but against his own vision of decent conduct. And we'll see that play out throughout the text. He views himself as a sinner. And that's really significant, especially when we think about Year of Wonders and how maybe sin is viewed in that text. The last section here is the fact that Proctor respected and even feared in Salem has come to regard himself as kind of a fraud. And I think this links in a little bit with Michael Montpellion untrue in one thing, untrue in everything, the idea of being a fraud. Proctor's first scene is shared with Abigail Williams, and he questions what mischief is here. On page 28, Abigail asks for a soft word with him, and they discuss their affair that they shared. Abigail says, I know how you clutched my back behind your house and sweated like a stallion whenever I come near And then she says, a wild thing may say wild things, calling herself or referring to herself as being wild. Proctor 
backs down on this, especially when Abigail says, I know you, referring to the affair that, that they had. Abigail, with bitter anger, then when he denies her, says, I marvel how such a strong man may let such a sickly wife be. Abigail then on page 30 says, I'll look for John Proctor that took me from my sleep and put knowledge in my heart. I never knew what pretense Salem was. I never knew the lying lessons I was taught by all these Christian women and they covenanted men. They're covenanted, covenanted men. And now you bid me tear the light out of my eyes. I will not, I cannot. You love me, John Proctor, and whatever sin it is, you love me yet. But John turns away from her. The Next section um, has Paris and the Putnams come in and we're introduced to Rebecca Nurse on page 31, someone who was of those men who both sides of the argument had to have respect. That's Francis Nurse. He was an unofficial judge and Rebecca also enjoyed the high opinion most people had for him on page 31. Um, The idea that there was a land war as well between the nurses and the Putnams is raised. But the really interesting description of Rebecca comes in later on when it says, as for Rebecca herself, the general opinion of her character was so high that to explain how anyone dared cry her out for a witch and more how adults could bring themselves to lay hands on her, we must look to the fields and boundaries of the time. And land was really important in this society. You know, land is how you gain power. The more land you had, the more power you had. And Thomas Putnam, as we already know, um, is really, 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 really interested in gaining as much land as he can. He wants the power. He was denied um, his choice of uh, reverend previously, and so he's going to try and take revenge on that by gaining as much land as he can. Rebecca uh, uses a lot of common sense here. She looks at Betty, she calms Betty down, and says, I think she'll wake in time. Pray you calm yourselves. She talks about her experience of being or having 11 children and being 26 times a grandma and suggests that this is all about their silly seasons. That's what she puts it down to. She suggests that um, as well that um, the girls will get tired of it eventually. They'll run out of uh, energy. Putnam though says on page 33, well, there'd be children dying in this village and... Proctor goes back at him saying, the society will not be a bag to swing around your head, Mr. Putnam. There is, um, both from Paris and Proctor, sorry, both from Putnam and Paris, lots of P names in this text, um, there's a lot of anger delivered towards John Proctor. But um, Rebecca says, I think we ought to rely on the doctor now and a good prayer. And um, she says to the those present, let us rather blame ourselves. So again, Mrs. Putnam is looking for an out, but Rebecca says, no, no, we need to blame ourselves. Mrs. Putnam then, um, I guess jealous of Rebecca Nurse, says later on page 33, you think it's God's work, you should never lose a child, nor grandchild either, and I bury all but one. There are wheels within wheels in this village and fires within fires. She's got this metaphor about the fact that there's Lots of anger within this village, lots of factions, lots of rivalries and lots of jealousy that someone is up to something. Someone is spiteful and wanting to hurt others. And we get again this discussion about land and the idea that, um, as Proctor says later on, we vote by name in the society, not by acreage. 
And then Putnam brings up the fact that he hasn't seen um, Proctor, he's his P names, hasn't seen Proctor at church for a little while. And he says, well, I don't go to church anymore because all Paris talks about is hellfire and bloody damnation. And that he hardly, hardly ever mentions God at all. That comes up on page 34. Paris then discusses his um, salary and the amount of wood that he's getting, and he's complaining about this. He talks about himself being uh, a Harvard College or graduate of Harvard College, and later on, such is his bitterness that he says, I have often wondered if the devil had been it somewhere. I cannot understand you people otherwise. He's really angry and upset about the ways being treated by the village. And Paris again in anger, says there is other obedience or the church will burn like hell when it comes to his views and his opinions. We then come to Giles Corey, who is quite an old man. In fact, I think he's about 80 years old. And he talks about the fact that he's been six times in court this year. The idea that they're a really greedy society, very, as Cosmo Kramer would say, very litigious society. And there's a discussion about... Um, wooden about land and the idea that Thomas Putnam is very much obsessed with the boundaries of the time. Putnam closes by saying that he'll clap a writ on Giles Corey. And then we come to this four-page long commentary. I guess this commentary is significant. I think a lot of students sort of brush over it, but I think it's really, really important. And I'm just going to pick out a couple of quotations from this uh, and then discuss it. Firstly, First quote I want to pick out, and this is on page um, 37 to 40. The first one is, Since 1692, a great but superficial change has wiped out God's beard and the devil's horns, but the world is still gripped between two diametrically opposed absolutes. The Catholic Church, through its Inquisition, is famous for cultivating Lucifer as the arch-fiend. And the idea here is that we've got these two ideas of good and evil. When we're talking about 1950s America, we're talking about democracy and communism. And we know that Arthur Miller uh, has a history with this. He, of course, was sent to HUAC and questioned for his what they believed, the government believed, communism views. And this idea about good and evil, which we all know comes up in Year of Wonders, you already know what page number it is. It's page 55 on the Year of Wonders when Anna talks about dark and light, dark and light, dark and light. That is how she was taught to view the world. He then mentions specifically the 1950s. He says, in America, any man who is not reactionary in his views is open to the charge of alliance with red hell, being communism. And then he mentions the fact, he looks back and he says, because again, this is an allegory, this is an allegorical play. He's linking what happened in Salem to what is happening in the 1950s. He said, what happened then is happening right now. He says, I have no doubt that people were communing with and even worshipping the devil in Salem. The idea that, yeah, of course they were. You know, look at how hard this life was to live. It was a shocking place to live, that barbaric frontier town. You know, such a strict religion being puritanism you know these are people who fled england to avoid persecution living in the toughest piece of land in america at the time anyway it definitely was he closes arthur miller by talking about women and the linking of women with sex and with sin he says sex and the devil were early linked and so they continued in salem and are today but he mentions particularly later on on page 40 says there remains conviction that the Russian attitude towards women is lascivious. Our opposites are always robed in sexual sin 
and it is from the unconscious conviction that demonology gains both its attractive sensuality and its capacity to infuriate and frighten. If you don't know what lascivious means, let's ask resident lawyer Jackie Charles. She's flouting society's conventions. She was flouting. It's totally inappropriate. It's lewd, lascivious, salacious, outrageous. And you know if you've read The Crucible that the phrase frighten and fear come up continuously throughout this text. The idea, though, that it's a woman's fault if whatever happens, you know, say with the adultery, it's Abigail's fault or it was Elizabeth's fault. In fact, Elizabeth blames herself for John's adultery. In Year of Wonders, we know that Eleanor, um, of course, is punished by Michael Montpellion for her sins and even Anna to an extent. You know, Michael Montpellion speaks down to her because of the way that she acts towards him. So, following this, we are introduced to Reverend Hale, who comes from Beverly. He is loaded down with half a dozen heavy books. That's a metaphor, obviously, for the weight. And I guess we discuss his view on the devil, which comes up on page 41. He says, We can't look to superstition in this. The devil is precise. The marks of his presence are definite as stone. And I must tell you all that I shall not proceed unless you are prepared to believe me if I should find no bruise of hell upon her. He's really strict in saying this. He goes, If I can't find witchcraft, you've got to believe me. Yeah, you have to. And Proctor opens up by saying to him, I've heard you're a sensible man, Mr. Hale. I hope you'll leave some of it in Salem. And obviously this is a little bit um, ironic. Um, Mrs. Putnam, then on page 42, says, Yep, I sent my child to Tichuba to learn who murdered her sisters. And Hale talks about the fact that, you know, have no fear. We shall find him out if he has come among us. And I mean to crush him utterly if he has shown his face. Um, the idea as well that Rebecca Nurse is really worried about this. She says to Reverend Hale that she goes to God for you at the very end um, to suggest that she's going to go pray um, to make sure that this chaos and hysteria ends. So Giles Corey mentioned something to Mr. Hale um, later on, on page 44. He talks about the fact that, look, I'm trying to say my prayers, but um, when my wife was reading books, I couldn't say my prayers. But when she stopped reading them, um, I could. Um, it was all right. And Hale makes note of that. He goes, hmm, that is strange. I'll speak further on that with you. We know, of course, later on that that ends up being what convicts Martha. But then when Hale finds out that there was dancing, and again, Paris admits the fact that he saw them dancing, it is then that Abigail is targeted and the hysteria begins on page 45. The first person, though, is Abigail. Um, she admits, yep, they were dancing. She goes, it was soup. They were cooking soup. Um, Paris suggests, well, there was some movement in there. Again, this link to witchcraft. And just when you think Abigail Williams is cornered, she says, on page 45, I never called him. It was Tichuba. Tichuba. And Tichuba is the first person who is accused of witchcraft. As we know, back to her introduction on page number 17, she's also very frightened because her slave senses warned her that as always, trouble in this house eventually falls upon her back. And trouble here does, does of course, fall on her black back. She's blamed for this. She's a slave. She's a woman. She's extremely easy target. And she's extremely worried because she's questioned by Hale and by Paris. In fact, Paris says to her, after asking whether she compacted with the devil, he says, you will confess yourself or I will take you out and whip you to death, Tichuba. 
Putnam says this woman must be hanged. She must be taken and hanged. Tichuba finds herself in a really, really tricky situation here. Basically, confess to witchcraft, go to jail, or you're going to be hanged. In fact, you sort of get this idea that either way, she's pretty much stuffed. When Tichuba is questioned, though, Hale gives her a bit of an out. He says, when the devil comes to you on page 47, does he ever come with another person? Perhaps another person in the village, someone you know. And it's Putnam who puts in her mind, Sarah Good. Do you ever see Sarah Good with him or Osborne? Note later on that those are the first two women who are then blamed by Tichuba. And Tichuba turns this on them. She says, Oh, how many times he bid me kill you, Mr. Paris? Kill me, he says in response. And again, this links to the year of wonders for me. This idea that this, these crises can affect everyone. Tichuba uses that to frighten Paris. We know in the year of wonders the idea that the plague um, can inflict anyone, that wealth and status um, are no barrier for the plague. And Tichuba says later on that she goes, he say, Mr. Paris must be killed, Mr. Paris no godly man, Mr. Paris mean man and no gentleman, and he bid me rise out of my bed and cut my throat. And look at that stage direction after that, they gasp. She has complete control here in this situation. They're all looking at her. They're all astonished by what she's saying. For me, again, we link to Year of Wonders and Anise Gowdy. And in the Song of the Witch chapter, how all the men look at her. They don't even look at their wives. They're all transfixed by her. And then we have all this blaming. So let's list them off. She blames Goody Good first, Sarah Good. Goody Osborne is the second to be blamed. And then Abigail, through stage directions, Rises, staring as though inspired, and she cries out. She too blames Sarah Good and Goody Osborne, and she blames the third person, Bridget Bishop. Betty then blames George Jacobs and Goody Howe. Abigail says Goody Sibber. Betty says Alice Barrow. Abigail says Goody Hawkins. Take it up to eight people who have been blamed. Goody Bibber and Goody Booth are the last two. They are... 10 people who are named at the end and the curtain falls with the stage directions on their ecstatic cries. This hysteria has engulfed the Paris household and this is where Act 1 ends. When it comes to looking at Act 1, I think it's great when we're looking at setting and the idea about Salem being an insular community and how this, and again, we talk about the plague in Year of Wonders being an external crisis well, the witch trials are definitely an internal crisis. Think about all the reasons why this crisis occurs. I mean, it all goes back from the start with Paris's insecurity and, you know, desire to protect himself. It also goes to the fact that the girls want to protect themselves too. We've got the jealousies and hatreds of each other. We've got the landlust, which again is mentioned at the very start. We've got a significant amount of fear here as well. And we've got this really strict Puritan society where it's just really oppressive, very strict, and individuals aren't allowed to be, well, they really lack freedom. And I think freedom is a really good theme to think about in the Crucible. Which characters are free, which characters aren't free? And think about the Year of Wonders and the freedoms that the characters do have and don't have. So that brings us a close to Act 1. I'm really sorry that went for a really, really long time, but it's a really important act for me. Act 2 will probably be a little bit shorter. Um, I find it's not as exciting as the other acts, um, but 
we'll have that posted for you next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to get in touch, 6pspodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next time when we look at Act 2 on the Crucible. Frankly, I'm surprised you're so litigious. Oh, I can be quite litigious. <laughs> <laughs>